Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. So we are in 1 John chapter 5, and this will be our last study on 1 John. And I believe it has been a great uplifting study for me because 1 John seems to mimic very, very well the theology of John and the gospel of John. So there's a huge overlap there. So if you never get to read in depth the gospel of John, then this study of 1 John is a good substitute for it. But we're just going to go ahead and start reading. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So, This kind of sounds like if you ask God for something, if you have confidence, if you know, remember in 1 John, there's Christians and then there's anti-Christians. And Christians are those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was risen from the dead, pre-incarnate with God from the beginning of the creation of the universe. If you believe all that, then you are a Christian and you have eternal life. But if you approach God and ask for anything... He hears us. But notice what John says here. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So John is saying not everything you ask comes to fruition, but if you ask according to God's will, it will come to fruition. And this is key this is what Jesus talked about when he preached to on the Sermon on the Mount and said to his disciples, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So basically, our prayer should be not what we want, but what God wants. And if you are aligned with God, and he has softened your heart and made your heart such that your heart aligns with his will, then you start to begin to ask for things that are aligned with his will. And he will hear you. And he will know what you asked of him. Uh, Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So you almost have the confidence. The way that he writes it is so interesting. We know that we have what we've asked of him. Because we know it's gonna, that he's going to bless it because it's of his will. So this is part of growing up in our Christian faith, is simply aligning ourselves more and more and more closely with God's will in our life. And when you do that, then the heavens open up and, and God starts pouring into you the, the things that he wants you to do. You, are, you become a conduit of his love for the, for the world around you because you are following God's will. Now, I guess I should say that we don't exactly, we're still fallen people, so we can't know exactly what God's will is in our life. We can get closer and closer and closer, more aligned with God's will, but we can't 100% know God's will because we are imperfect people. Nobody has lived since Jesus, who's perfect. So 
when you are aligning yourself with God's will, don't think you know it 100% or perfectly because you don't. What you do know is that you are growing deeper in your faith and you're aligning your will with him. And some things are obvious and some things aren't so obvious. And so those are the things that require discernment. And you have to remember in James, it says that if you ask God for wisdom, he will grant it to you. So if you ask God for discernment, he will, his Holy Spirit is in you to help you in discernment. So John here is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, align yourself with his will, and then he will work in your life to do his will. That's what he's saying. Then he goes on to something interesting. Verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this, this is fascinating. Because what he's writing about, he says, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death. So he's obviously talking about a brother or sister in the faith. Now, if you look at the Greek here, he's not talking about physical death. There are sins that lead to physical death. We know that. There are... <laughs> There, you know, the sin of walking in front of a moving train is a sin that leads, you know, leads to death. So he's not talking, he's actually talking about spiritual death here. And what he's talking about is sins that, there are two types of sins. There's sins that lead to death and there's sins that don't lead to spiritual death. I should point out that there are sins, spiritual sins, that lead to physical death. Uh, we know that from the book of Acts when Ananias and Sapphira held back some of the offering and told a lie to the disciples. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? This is going to lead to death. And then they died. So there are, there are spiritual sins that lead to physical death. We know that. And of course, anytime you are not connected to Jesus, your, your life is not, uh, you, you are going to accelerate your death quicker. But when you are connected to Jesus, he is the vine and we are the branches. We slow down that, that death. But all of us eventually die. So we're talking about spiritual death here. If you see a brother or sister, this is in the faith, commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. So if they're sinning, you should say, hey, you know, stop sinning. But then he says, I refer to those whose sins does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And you shouldn't pray about that one. That is interesting. Like, What is the sin that leads to death? And we're talking about spiritual sins that lead to spiritual death. And this would be a sin against the Holy Spirit. This would be for when you, when you deny that Christ is in your life, that you don't want anything to do with him. It's the sin against the Holy Spirit. And um, I have a quote here. What is the sin that leads to death? Yarbrough puts it well. It is to have a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ and so to persist in convictions and acts and commitments like those John and his readers know to exist among ostensibly Christian people of their acquaintances, some of whom have now left those whom John addresses. So that's a long and, and way to say it's people who, who have... Um, well, now it's interesting. There's, there's, uh, this is a, this is a problem. There, there is, 
Let me see if I can set this up quickly and correctly. There are two types of theologies out there about Christianity. One is this theology that says once you're saved, you're always saved. Like if the Holy Spirit is truly acting in your life and he's guiding and directing you, how could you possibly not be saved after that point? And there's so many scripture references that talk about this. Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things past nor things present can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a text, among with others, that say that once you are a follower of Jesus and you're in the kingdom, you pretty much don't have the power because the Holy Spirit's living in your life to leave the kingdom. So this is called once saved, always saved. It's a very Calvinistic, um, Calvinistic tulip basically that perseverance in the faith, I think it's the P, and I can't remember, but anyway, but that basically you stay in the faith once you're in the faith. There's another way to view scripture, which is that, yes, we stay in the faith, and yes, the Holy Spirit is in us, but we still have free will, and since we have free will to go against God, we don't have free will in anything else, but we do have free will to go against God, in the fact that we could deny the Holy Spirit and walk away from God, in which case you've now committed what I believe John is saying here, which is what he calls the sin that leads to death, which is denying the Holy Spirit in your life. It's kind of like an unbaptism. Like if your baptism gets you into the kingdom, that you do something to basically unbaptize yourself, and I don't want to be in the kingdom anymore. I've chosen actively to leave. And that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And it is... Um, it causes a lot of people a lot of stress, like, have I committed this sin? Well, even asking that question, have I committed this sin, you know, showing repentance or remorse or not wanting to leave the kingdom tells you that you're not left the kingdom. It is apparently um, a sin that happens very, very, very rarely and um, not very often, but it does happen. So a couple of examples of this might be Judas, who walked and spent three years with Jesus. If you are in the camp that says, well, once saved, always saved, then you have to come to the conclusion that three years of Judas walking with Jesus, he was never saved, right? Because Jesus never penetrated his heart deeply. If you're on that camp. If you're on the other camp, then you would say, well, of, uh, of course Jesus, uh, Judas was saved. He walked with Jesus, but his allure of money was greater than than Jesus in his life, and he walked away from Jesus. And there's debates about this. I mean, these are debates that that rip apart the church because everybody thinks that they have an answer on this one, that they know how Scripture is revealed in this area. There are people who believe once saved, always saved, and they are adamant that that's the only way the Scripture talks about it. There's other people that say, no, you can be, as a Christian, you can walk away from God, and they're adamant about that. Now, practically speaking, have you ever met anybody that you were absolutely convinced was a follower of Jesus Christ, and then as they, as they you know, moved into their life, they, they basically walked away from it? And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, like a casual thing where, where they learn the teachings of Jesus, but then they kind of live their own life the way they think that Jesus would want them to leave, and they still consider themselves to be nominally Christian, and they they do good works, and they think that that is pleasing Jesus, even though it doesn't. 
but they never like actively go out of their way to to kind of disassociate themselves from Jesus. But there are times when people do this. So the, the story that comes to mind, actually, I just thought of this story yesterday. I was talk, telling somebody of it. When I was at Denver Seminary, there was a professor I had who told a story about a star student that he had that went to take a call as a very young student um, at a church. And um, when he was there, he decided to have an affair with um, maybe the secretary or something like that. And this professor said, by all, by all means, he was absolutely convinced that this young man was a follower of Jesus Christ. Everything he said, everything he did indicated that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And then when he went and had this affair, the elders of the church came to him and said, you, you are, you cannot do this as the pastor of our church. You need to repent. You know, we do, do got to do some things because, you know, we want God to continue working his life. And the man said, apparently the young man said, you know what? I'm not going to repent. I've, I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist, Jesus doesn't exist, and I deny the whole thing, and he, I'm done with him. And this created a moral dilemma for my professor because my professor was in the camp of once saved, always saved. And so he had a moral dilemma like, how do you interpret that? Like how? So the way that you, if you say once saved, always saved, then what you say is that, well, this person was never saved. This person... Deep down in their heart, they were just going through the, mo through the motions, but they truly were not saved. But that doesn't really provide any comfort, does it? Because a lot of the times what we point to in our life to say that we're saved is all the things that we do for Jesus. Like we know we're saved because we know that the love of Jesus permeates our life. And, and look, Jesus, all the things I'm doing to love you and... Um, so if you point to that and then all of a sudden you walk away from it, like you're left with, then how does once saved, always saved? Well, the flip side is, though, that if you are in the king, you're in the side that says, well, you can walk away from your salvation. Then you have the questions like, have I done something that makes me walk away from my salvation? Like, is the sin that I'm doing so grievous that it's a sin against the Holy Spirit? Because I knew that what I was doing was wrong and I knew the Holy Spirit was in my life and I just, the, the power that I, the power of that was sin was greater than the power of Jesus in my life. And I don't know of my saved. And, and Paul talks about this. He says, why do I keep doing the things that I know I shouldn't do? Because I know that Jesus is in my life. Well, it's because of your human condition. Every day we do things that we know we shouldn't do. But those are not things that are separating you from God, which leads into a whole bunch of different other questions, right? But the sin against the Holy Spirit if you are of the uh, of this thing that says you can walk away, is basically denying God's power in your life to fight these battles and say, I don't want to fight these battles anymore because I want to go to the other side and I want to be an antichrist, as, as, as John would say here. And that is the sin that leads to death, spiritual death. It's the sin that leads to spiritual death is basically, in my opinion on this, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit. So how do you know, how do you know you're saved then? I mean, if, <laughs> and this is the bigger question. This is the mind-blowing question. If you, if the things, if, if your good works, you can't point to your good works to know that you're saved. And this is what Luther says all the time, right? Like our, our even our good works are filthy rags according to Jesus, right? Because we're sinful human beings. And so why do we do good works? Are we trying to get on good side? And you can't get on good side. Nothing you do 
can lead you to be in favor with God. So if it's not your good works, if it's not, if you're a sinful human being, if it's not your decision for Christ, a lot of people make a decision for Christ and they point to that and they say, well, that's what I did. But then how many times do you say, well, I made a decision for Christ and then went right outside and I started sinning again. And I thought that wasn't supposed to happen. So did I make the right decision for Christ? And so you'll have some people that say make a decision two times or three times or five times or they, you know, they make a decision for Christ many, many times in their life because they want the confidence assurance of knowing that they're saved. Um, and the fact is, is if you point to something that is human to say, that's how I know I'm saved, then then it will always fail you because the truth is, is that that's eternal salvation is a free gift from Jesus. He gives it freely and there is nothing you have to do. It's like, well, I have to have something to point to that says that I'm saved. And for Luther, that was baptism. He basically said, if you want something to point to that knows that you, that you know that you're saved, point to your baptism because at your baptism, you became a child of God, entered the kingdom and it wasn't anything that you did. Well, if you, um, you know, if you if you baptize people who are infants, then they obviously had no control over that. But if you baptize somebody as an adult, at least there's an outward sign that says, yes, you made that commitment. But then you were baptized, and this baptismal act was a sacred act that brought you into the kingdom of God. And so you're now in the kingdom, whether or not you knew what you were doing or you didn't know what you were doing or you you know, you know were just new in your faith or you were deep in your faith or whatever, point to your baptism that says now you're in the kingdom. And that actually is the historical kind of view of baptism is that it brought you into the kingdom of God. And uh, now that you're in the kingdom of God, you're in. It's like you're in the military, right? You you will find a way to get you to the finish line because you're now in the kingdom of God. You're now in the church, whereas opposed to, let's say, the police academy where you have to do all these things and learn all these things, and then they accept you, but then if you don't you know, operate according, then they kick you out. The military, they'll take you, right? And they'll use you any possible way. I guess you can be kicked out of the military too, but that's the unforgivable sin. Anyway, so this I hope this makes sense, but, but basically... For Luther, it was baptism. Baptism was the mark or the sign where you entered into the kingdom of God with all rights and privileges, including eternal life, life with the Holy Spirit, helping you fight the battles and all those things. Baptism is a great, in my opinion, baptism is a great thing to point to because you can't take away your baptism. Unless, I guess, you say, I'm leaving the kingdom of God. I don't want anything. I want to unbaptize myself. And I guess that's kind of like being an unchristian. So... Maybe that's, and, but even, even then, you know, going through that act of unbaptizing yourself may not be the unforgivable sin. I, because Jesus is still, you know, in, wants you into the kingdom. He, his words are still rattling around in your brain. You understand who he is and what he wants for your life. And that doesn't go away. So it's a very, very difficult, convoluted theological question. But the practical application of all of this is that uh, we should pray for each other. <laughs> If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, and we'll just assume that all sins do not lead to death if they're brother or sister, unless it's like a really, really bad sin, then just pray for them and say, listen, God, help this person overcome this sin because we do not want them to continue sinning. Uh, and there is this too, that when people commit sins, it always at some level separates them from the love of God in their mind. 
And if that continues in a downward spiral more and more and more and more, it could lead to eternal spiritual death. So we, any sin could do that. So we should constantly pray for our brothers and sisters that they don't sin. And all wrongdoing is sin, and there's a sin that does not lead to death. Yes, all wrongdoing is sin. We, we saw that in 1 John. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, let's, let's just kind of go to the end here, the conclusion of, of John. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. So really quickly here, this has to be the sin that leads to death, right? We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We know we sin, but we don't continue to sin in a sin that leads to death. One who was born of God keeps them safe. So the Holy Spirit is in your life helping you fight the battles, and the evil one cannot harm you. So this is great. If you believe that uh, you need strength for the battles of life, you should know that the Holy Spirit is in your life helping you fight the battles and the evil one cannot harm you. So once you're in the kingdom, this is so great. Once you're in the kingdom, it's like the sign of the water has poured over you and now you are protected from all the demons that are that are around the earth. This is this is huge, my friends. There are a lot of people that are that are haunted by demons in their life. Uh, not as much here in the United States as in other cultures, but even here in the United States, there's people wondering if there's demons that are trying to persecute them or do whatever, uh, tr you know, trying to, uh, trying to get in their life and do bad things. But according to John, if we read this carefully, he says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. If you are born of God, the evil one cannot harm you. I don't know how to say that more definitely. And scripture, there's many, many places scripture that, that talk about this. Once you're in the kingdom and you're born of God, the evil one has no power over you. It's like he put scotch guard on your soul. Uh, Jesus put, you know, scotch guard on your, scotch guard on your soul at your baptism. And the evil one is completely forbidden from, from destroying your life. He cannot harm you. <clears throat> you can harm yourself. He can get in your mind and he can, you know, make you think that he can harm you, but he cannot, he has no power over you whatsoever. Once the Holy Spirit is in your life, the, the, you know, he's standing guard at the gate with his like little finger saying, get out of here. <laughs> you got no power here. And that's, I mean, literally he has, the evil one has no power. We know that we, I'll continue reading. This is verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> that last verse always just, it's like, yeah, the evil one has no power from you, and we know Jesus and we, we're being true to the Son of God and He is the true God and eternal life and God Jesus is God is Jesus and Jesus is God and He rose from the dead and I'm all la la. And he says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And it's like was like this the whole point of first John was to keep ourselves from idols? And maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe what John is saying here is just keep yourself pure, right? Just 
follow Jesus. Let him live in your life and fight the battles from you. Don't follow idols. Idols lead to sin. Sin can lead to this spiral of death where you actually deny God and, and revoke your baptism. So just don't even go there. Children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from chaste. As far as it, as far as it is up to you, just do the things that God is required to you. And what does God require to you? Love one another. That's all Jesus. Love God. Love one another. If you do those things, you're following my commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So my friends, this is the end of 1 John. Um, keep yourself from idols. Love one another. Let the Holy Spirit help you fight battles in life. Know that you're safe in him, that he, he loves you, he cares for you. You are his precious child. Live that way and know that God sent his son to redeem you, to bring you into the kingdom. Nothing you did, everything that he did. So I think that will end there. So let's close in prayer. Gracious God, Thank you for being in my life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps me fight the battles. Thank you for your redemption in my life so that I can live with you eternally. Because of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.